Welcome to Corporate Caffeine. I'm Dacia Coffee. As a chief marketing officer, speaker, author, copywriter, and three-time entrepreneur, I've learned a thing or two about influence and impact in the business world. So I want to share with you what I've learned about how to be heard, be seen, and be successful, and introduce you to the people I've met along the way who learned how to unlock their potential. On today's episode of Corporate Caffeine, we're being joined by Daisy McCarty, a brilliant brand messaging strategist and a fractional chief marketing officer. Daisy is crushing it for her clients by delivering amazing brand messaging playbooks that not only change the game for lead generation, but also help them accelerate their sales processes. It's some of the most exciting work I've ever gotten to witness, and you are going to love what this amazingly polished woman has to say about how to improve your personal results, your personal words, and even what we all need to be ready for for tomorrow. Hey, everybody. Excited to be here. And Daisy McCarty, thank you so much for joining Kyle and I. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me, Daisha. Absolutely. So you and I have worked for a number of years together, um, talented copywriter and brand messaging specialists, but we've seen some crazy things the last year and a half in marketing. Would you agree? <laughs> it's definitely different than it was a year and a half ago. And I think you know, there are some people who are rolling with it pretty well and some people who are confusing pivoting with flailing oh. <laughs> and just <laughs> yes. try, continuing to try everything to see what works, but doing it faster than they were before. Yeah. So there's like some wisdom to fail faster, but don't just keep doing that. Don't flail faster. Don't flail. Fail faster, not flail faster. Exactly. So what do you think is the difference between the folks that are flailing versus pivoting? It's definitely going back to the fundamentals. Those that are taking this time to review their strategy and strengthen the things that they're built on that have always worked and will work no matter what's changing in the market are the ones that are succeeding. And those that are reacting rather than responding and just trying to make it through the next couple of months rather than looking at where they're going to be in the long term. Because those that do survive are going to be well established for the long term. Yes, 100%. I mean, it's interesting because it's almost like grounding into your strength versus sinking into fear. You know, when you think about reactivity versus strategic pivot, strategic movement forward. Yes, the more chaotic everything around you becomes, the more stable you have to become. Yeah, really good point. And wow, talk about differentiation in action when you're just really anchored to what you know is the best thing for the industry and your clients. That's it's a good emotional place to be. It is. And it's what your customers want to sense when they're working with you. Yeah, exactly. Now, I don't always see clients or companies really clear with their strategy. So are you seeing a lot of people rethinking strategy or diving in documenting? I mean, how do you think that's been different? Or is it the people that already had a clear strategy in place that are winning? I think those who already have a strategy in place are doing really well. The ones that I see that are coming to me, they know this is stuff they should have been doing, but yeah. they were putting it off. So it's it's best practices that they've been backburnering for a long time. And now they have been forced to take the time and put the resources toward it. And a lot of them are, they're simply not using marketing funds for the other 
short-term sales activation activities they were doing before, like trade shows and whatnot. So they have the ability to take the time and the resources and put it toward this. And they're simply making the, the smart choice to say, okay, this is our wake up call. Yeah. And yeah. What they're choosing to move forward in a smart way. I think it's so interesting what you're talking about, about moving money to sales activation. I worked with a company and actually in a training capacity, but their senior executives were notorious for stealing marketing dollars and putting them towards coupons and, um, discounts to close deals. And so it had to come out of the budget somewhere. And they were tanking some of their brand awareness and brand strategies. And ooh, it had called, caused a cultural storm. In addition to, you know, there was some fallout in the marketplace because they weren't doing the marketing activations that they needed to in order to get some of the different buyers. So I think that's so on point about, okay, <laughs> don't just knee jerk for short term. Sure. And you can actually see that with businesses doing it on the back end too. It's like we can skimp on delivery just so we can make more sales. So, you know, it's, it's easy to focus on, on the sales side because that's where the, you see the immediate impact in dollars coming in. But if you skimp on the front end in marketing brand awareness or afterward on operations, then yeah, it's, it's never going to turn out well in the long term. No, exactly. Well, you know what? I think we need to rewind for just a second because I love jumping straight into the deep end, but the people that are listening haven't ever met you before. Well, she's quite visible on LinkedIn, so maybe <laughs> they have seen you. There's, there's definitely a possibility that they have, but tell us a little bit about what you do and so they can get a sense of who you are and where your magic comes from. Sure. So I specialize in brand message development, and that's a very specific piece of the marketing puzzle. So I don't do everything. I don't do design. I don't build people's websites. But I do work with my clients in the B2B space on building their brand messaging, which includes all the core components from their vision and mission and values to their value prop, the USP. Um, as we say, sometimes the incomparable advantage. What are they doing that's different and better that makes a difference for their clients and it's hard for their competitors to imitate? So they have a very strong market position. And I say, I would say I spend probably half my time just on buyer personas because that's really the most important thing is understanding who your customers are and aligning your messaging with what matters to them and not just what you think makes your brand important. 100%. 100% just to think it's not about you. It's about getting their attention, meeting their needs, creating a transformation for them, but getting into the brand message playbooks that you deliver and, you know, building incomparable advantage for our clients. That is one of the favorite things I love about your work is that you untangle spaghetti. You help people understand the architecture of brand messaging, you know, and when to say it, why to say different things, but in a way that's really street ready. Put it in an email, put it in a message, put it on the website, not they have to figure out this big conceptual process. We or you do it for them. Absolutely. My clients are always coming to the table with a deeper understanding of their customer base than they think they have, yes. but they have so much knowledge that it's hard for them to understand which are the important pieces and what are the underlying commonalities that are going to make them better able to target their ideal customers. So having someone who has no, you know, no investment in, you know, being right or wrong about anything specific, but it's really able to just listen and ask the right questions to pull out the information and then do that reflective listening and say, this is what I'm hearing. And when they hear it back, they're like, wait, 
why don't we have that client? Yeah. <laughs> That's not, we don't want more of those deals. <laughs> or you know, they, they finally start really identifying what the things are that their clients, their best clients have in common and what they should be doing to get more of those. And it's, yeah, my, my special gift is being able to take massive amounts of information, quickly go through it, understand it, pull the insights and put it into actionable format. So they, act, they have the words. Their yeah. marketing people and their salespeople both know exactly what to say, who to say it to, and at what point in the journey they should be speaking those words. I find it so exciting to see their response to finally having the words that tell their truth. Yes. And then being able to say to their entire team, this is what we say. This is how we stay consistent. You know, I mean, you kind of feel that shoulders back pride sometimes. And yeah, that's exactly who we are. I think it's so gratifying to watch that transformation in their individual response to their marketing, in addition to what it does for their top line. Absolutely. When my clients hear their own truth in simple words that are easy to understand, they recognize it. And that means that their customers are going to recognize it as well. 100%. I love what you said earlier about how much knowledge they bring to the table. It's like a curse of knowledge that they sit under because I find the same thing that so frequently, they simply don't know how much they know. They forgot what it was like to be a beginner. They forgot what it's like to not know how difficult it is to make a decision in their industry. And you specialize in complicated environments. And so that actually leads me over to one of your favorite groups of people or industries to work with are technology companies and even tech startups, correct? Yes, I would say probably 60% of the customers I work with are either SaaS, they're doing technology consulting, or they're doing custom software development. And all of those are very complicated sales cycles. They There's a lot of education that they have to bring to their customers in order to create an environment where they can make a decision. And they're very often looking at the technology from their perspective and not from their customer's perspective. And that makes it very difficult unless they have someone translating in the middle. 100%. It's that context, right? It doesn't matter how good a feature or benefit is if the client doesn't understand it compared to what or what does it help them do, their point of view. It doesn't matter. And I find it almost creates this commodity type of messaging where everybody looks and sounds the exact same in these kind of environments, unless you can find the way to really align with the buyers. It is. And mm, less experienced companies make the mistake of just talking about features, but even more experienced companies will still make the the mistake of just talking about business benefits and yes. they miss the emotional component. And that's, that's the gap that we're trying to help fill. When we build those buyer personas, it's not just how does this fix your problem? But how are you feeling right now? And it doesn't mean that the, the copy that's written, it sounds fluffy and emotional. It usually doesn't. That's not typically appropriate in the B2B tech space. Right. However, we're asking the questions and starting the conversations that make the customer feel heard. Yes. I think that's significant where when you said make the customer singular, feel heard, so feel and then heard. I mean, you're really talking about a point of view where marketing is treating people individually so that they can engage. Am I hearing you correctly? It absolutely is. People in the B2B 
sector are actually not selling to other businesses. They are selling to human beings that are inside those businesses. And that's the distinction that they need to really wrap their heads around when they're building their personas. Yes, it can be a specific role. Yes, it can be a specific sector. But at the end of the day, there's a, there's a human being who has to be willing to engage with their brand. 100%. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to shift just a little bit. Um, in your brain message playbook, as you had mentioned earlier, you really deliver all the different components in what I call the messaging architecture, right? And it's funny, something happened the other day where I'm putting the finishing touches on my first book, so exciting. And so of course what I'm doing is I'm going back through the book and I'm checking semantics, right? Am I using all of the words correctly? So this leads me down this crazy path, this crazy squirrel of, well, how does the AMA define this and how to how does Harvard define different, you know, USPs or, you know, brand promise? And we've had a couple of situations with clients where they had a different definition of brand promise than we did. And what I came to the conclusion of is there is zero agreement across like industry-wide across all marketers about what some things actually mean. I had somebody reach out to me just the other day saying, I think your definition of mission is wrong. I was like, would you like to have a call? We can argue. I'll even bring you on my podcast. To do it. Let's change my mind. <laughs> exactly. Please try. Let's do this. And it, but it was the craziest thing. So how do you create that clarity and that structure where they understand and you don't get lost in the semantics or have you run into that? Of course. So this is the funny thing about working in marketing and working with technology clients, because these are two industries that have some of the most jargon of any industry. <laughs> so true. But here's the funny thing. In technology companies, they create more and more specific terms to create greater clarity and precision. Yeah. And in marketing, they create more and more terms to create greater obfuscation. <laughs> to create <laughs> yes. that mantle of, oh, we have this special magical language that nobody else knows. Yes. And, you know, this is why you need to hire us. So yes, it is something that comes up with in marketing. So the approach I always take is start with what are we trying to accomplish with this? Nice. That's more important than the name that it's called. Yes. So we start with this is what we're actually trying to do. And once we decide on that and how to achieve that, then people are much more open to, okay, so we're calling it this. Yeah. So that their team understands what that piece is for. Because it really doesn't matter if client A is calling it one thing and client B is calling it something different because they read a different marketing book at some point. Yeah. Really well said. I think that's probably also why you resonate so well with companies that are trying to accelerate their growth quickly because you're literally talking about, okay, it only matters how we put it into practice and whether or not it works. You're not getting lost in the conceptual clouds of, you know, brand strategy. It's like, nope, brand strategy has to sell more. How are we going to do that? What are the words that help us do that? Exactly. I love it. Love it. Okay. So what are some of the most common mistakes that you see out there and are they different? Okay. Let me help answer that. <laughs> I'm just sitting here listening to you guys talk. I'm in like the operations part. I have... No clue. You guys are professionals at this. But the one thing that we will get a lot on an onboarding call is I already know my buyer personas. And I heard you bring it up twice. Yeah. Talk about the importance of them a little bit. I mean, you both bring them up. 
all the time. Whenever we are onboarding clients, yeah. like you do hear CEOs a lot go, "Oh, we know our we don't we don't need to do buyer personas. We've got those nailed down." And you and, and you always get, "Well, what what is your buyer persona?" Um, males, females between thirty five and forty five, and that's all you'll get. <laughs> yes, totally. Anyway. What do you think? Like, sure. So when I get that response, oh, we we already did that. You know, we did that in house, or we did that five years ago. Then my next question is, okay, send me the documentation. Amen, sister. Crickets, crickets. Or, well, here's what we have, and it's like a one-pager of, you know, some bullet points that they went through in an exercise. Okay, talk to me about how you're executing on this. Yeah. Again, there's no answer. So then we can have the conversation of, was this not done in depth in the correct way? Or is this absolutely accurate, everything that you've told me? And it's just not being acted on. 100%. I had somebody the other day tell me one of their buyer personas was OEMs. Well, I worked with an OEM that made lawn furniture. I also worked with another OEM that made parts for aircraft. I worked with another one that sold parts to major auto manufacturers. Um, I'm pretty sure they are different people, <laughs> different criteria, you know, but they just, I mean, to your point, Kyle, I mean, they yeah. just were being really broad where they just thought, well, they work with an OEM. That's my buyer persona. About three years ago, we had a client, now that I think about it, that um, said, oh, and handed you their buyer persona documentation. And we ran a campaign and it just wasn't any good. And yeah, it, they had it wrong. And so we went back and by then it was six months down the road, developing all the tactics and Yep. You're just like, well, wait a minute. You gave me, and from then on, it was like, no, we're going to do your buyer personas. You no are so right. Now, that is the story about the power of data because the data yeah. showed us. It was old data. Oh, the, well, when we started running the digital campaigns, the data showed us that the assumptions we were running were wrong. Were wrong. Like right. it was not working like it was supposed to. So the good news, you can pivot quickly, but you are so right. I mean, we did not go through the formal strategy to validate is what they told us and what they gave us actually happening in the market because it was not. And that was, oh, that was a kick in the gut. But you learn and you, you pivot. Learn. You tell the truth. You know, <laughs> you're like, we got to figure something new out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, typically when I'm first talking to a business that's thinking about having the process done, we run through what a brand message playbook should look like so they get to see our real buyer persona. Yeah. And that's usually the point where they go, oh, yeah, we didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, really. exactly. exactly. So how did you cut your teeth in it? How did you get to this point? I mean, you guys have been talking like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this. No problem. <laughs> um, I'm kind of interested in it. It's something you just don't, don't learn in college for the most part. Well, and I love <laughs> this, this. detail. I love yeah. this question because Daisy's got a very interesting path to here. So why don't you tell yeah, us? Well, I'd sure. like to hear. So sure. my background before I started my own business was actually working in corporate procurement. So I was in purchasing for over six years. Okay, let me just pause on that. Yes. Purchasing. purchasing yes, I know you are. Marketing. All of the B2B <laughs> companies out there are like, we hate purchasing. We hate you. <laughs> I so I feel your pain. I was part of your pain. I apologize for that. But uh, it was really interesting. I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner. So I was always listening. You know, I was the fly on the wall. What are B2B salespeople saying? 
what are, how are they, what are they putting on their websites? You know, I was responsible for going out there and finding the three companies who are going to come to the table and put in a bid. So I understand what that criteria is for what people are looking for. Yeah. And then every sales pitch that could possibly be made. <laughs> You've seen and it then all. the conversations that take, take place once the salespeople leave the room. Um, and obviously the thing that purchasing hates the most is when people circumvent the purchasing process. But as a B2B company, <laughs> you want to make it impossible for purchasing to do an apples to apples comparison. Yes. That is when there's an internal champion within the company, I don't know, VP of engineering, the CIO or somebody who says, we have to have this one. No one else can do this yes. for us. So that's the perspective and insight that I brought to the table when I started doing copywriting and content writing about 12 years ago. Oh goodness. 13 years in April. Yes. It's been a while. <laughs> and I actually, I started just learning by doing. I didn't have a, a background in marketing, no portfolio, no industry contacts. So I started at, you know, the the Elance guru level, those bidding platforms. Sure. Um, which was actually a really good way to get my foot in the door because I could just, you know, communicate directly with prospective clients who were expressing an interest. And so... Although those rep, uh, platforms have a bad reputation for just being bottom of the barrel and whatnot, um, that really has to do with how you approach it. Agreed. So I ended up doing quite well um, on the bidding platforms just by differentiating myself and delivering really great value to my customers. And so learning by doing eventually built up enough referral and repeat business that I moved away from those platforms and started doing more um, outreach, went through a period of doing all local networking, which was super fun. So yep. doing workshops on how, how we do met. That. Yep. Um, and then I started leveraging LinkedIn, which is a whole story in and of itself. But along the way, I was working with a ton of different small to mid-sized businesses directly as their copywriter. And then doing subcontract work for a lot of different marketing agencies and web development and web design agencies. So I was seeing what the outcomes were based on how businesses were approaching this process. So yeah. the ones that just said, let's start writing stuff and putting it out there and try to iterate their way to the brand message they needed from there. They spent more and more and more and more money, lost yes. more and more and more time doing the wrong things. And the ones that went through a process of defining their brand message and their buyer personas before spending that first marketing dollar, they were knocking it out of the park and they were hitting their revenue goals. They were growing. They were, you know, meeting whatever strategy they had, whether that was growth, whether that was selling the company. I, the, so many success stories, and they are, but they all come back to just foundational best practices. And these are not things that are unique to what I do. These are things that a lot of people know about, but not everybody's doing well Agreed. or at all. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Well, and one thing I want to pause on your story about is a couple of different things. Number one, I absolutely love the lifelong learner and the spirit that you bring to, well, you never pigeonholed yourself in that. And you were able to see a perspective of how that point of view could translate into a very different career where you're creating massive value, not despite your background, but because of your background. I mean, I just love that. And I think a lot of people could learn a lot about that courage and confidence in yourself to know that you create value for someone. So I love that. I've got to ask, well, were you I love a the idea that it seems like she cut through the BS at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> learned it all, then went out and hustled and found it all and make this great product. Yeah. I mean, that's... 
I know. It's what awesome. A success story. Totally. Totally. Now, did you write meaning for fun? Were you like, did you love to write when you were a kid? I mean, because not everyone is a good writer. Not everyone can learn to be a good writer. So that came from somewhere. I did some creative writing when I was younger. My older sister was actually the more of the novelist and the poet and everything. But my role was always the communicator. So it was yeah. not about here, I'm going to create a work of art from within myself to share. It was always, I'm going to help this person understand this other person better. Nice. Yeah, you were like born for this. (laughs) Exactly, because I'm not telling my story. I'm telling my client's story. Yeah. It goes back to that active listening you were mentioning. Exactly. Because that's what you naturally learned how to do growing up in your environment and then have probably applied to everything you've ever done. Always, yes. That is cool. So cool. So does your sister right now? Yes, she actually has her own copywriting business. She started doing that a year before I did. So I was watching her. Oh. I was like, I'm going to see if that actually works. I was like, okay, <laughs> she's surviving. Nice. Give that it a try neat. myself. I know. Well, it's funny because I did not graduate from college to go straight into creative or marketing. I came out cutting my teeth in sales. And so communication was always my strength. Sales, I, I got trained by some of the best companies, you know, at the time and just that communication training. And so when I finally went into marketing, I was doing a lot of copywriting accidentally for small businesses and just that's very similar. I was working with uh, small local publications, but they would say, can you fix this for this client? And then all of a sudden they would go from their client to my client. I'd start working with them on some things, but it was being in the trenches. And for me, it was coming from a sales point of view. And I'm looking at marketing copy being like, that wouldn't sell anything. (laughs) (laughs) Like like, That is not going to sell a thing. (laughs) Yes. In the land of, we have never spoken to an actual customer. (laughs) Right? Exactly. Yes. I think that's the hardest part in B2B too, is the normal college stuff that's taught about marketing does not apply. You've got to get really aggressive about where does this fit in how we sell and how people really look at this. And you can't be scared of the complicated jargon, you know, depending or the industry specifics. I mean, you've really got to understand what the sales environment is. Absolutely. So how do you do that? I mean, like, do you invite people into the room during this? I mean, what's your ideal scenario for getting that tribal knowledge, so to speak, that and all of that knowledge that they bring to the table that you mentioned earlier, how do you do that? Like who's in the room? What do you suggest? There's usually, in principle, the more people, the better, but there's of course a cap on when that just becomes unmanageable. For sure. Uh, always the founder, whoever is doing sales, if they've got you know a team that's doing sales, I like to have as many of those people as possible because that's where you're getting a voice of the customer from unless you're doing direct interviews with their customers yourself. Yep. Um, then whatever subject matter experts you have within that industry um, because you're going to get a very, very different description of what's being sold from the technology folks than you are from the salespeople. Yeah, the implementers versus the sellers. Yes. Totally. And so there's... Some things that the salespeople are completely missing the boat on because they don't understand how the technology is actually benefiting the customer because the technology team has not been able to communicate that to them. And that's another area where I come in and say, okay, this is what your tech people are saying. Yes. And this is how that might 
help you get over this hurdle that you're experiencing in the sales process. Um, and then again, sometimes the way the technology folks are talking about things, they're bringing up stuff that their customers do not care about at all. 100%. Oh, God, I've seen that. Now, do you have to pretty much ignore their marketing department since you're blowing it up and bringing it back, bringing life back to it? Because if you took something that already exists, it would kind of defeat the purpose in a way. Or do you just get ideas from them? So most of the companies I've worked with don't have an internal marketing department. They've hired outside people usually multiple times. Yes. Piecing it together. Yes. Or they have someone internal who's just doing tactics and execution. And they are so grateful to have someone <laughs> to come and talk to their sales team <laughs> and say, okay, you can't just keep asking marketing to make stuff yes. that you think you need. Yes, We're going to all sit down and we're going to have a conversation about this. I've never come into a, an organization where this process has been done thoroughly by an internal marketing person. They've usually tried to do pieces of it, but it's, it's a, it is a specialty. It is not something that a marketing generalist is necessarily going to know how to really dig down and do. I completely agree with that. And also, I think there's an element and about missing the forest for the trees, because eventually, if you're internal, some things start to become very familiar to you. You stop asking questions about why are we saying that? Or is there something I'm not seeing? I mean, you start to inherit the natural blind spots of the company that you work for. And then on top of that, you also bring whatever people believe about you into as a facilitator, right? So you can't necessarily ask the difficult questions or state things that need to be said, but an outside person can, because we don't know that's a sacred cow. <laughs> sure. And I think one of the, the unfortunate things is that often marketing is brought in and as a support for sales and they're not given the voice that they need to have. Right. It's like they're okay. We need somebody to help generate leads. We need somebody to take care of our social media. We need somebody to do this X, Y, Z, but they're not being brought in to say, okay, you know, marketing and sales are really not the same thing. They're just different skill sets within the mm -hmm. same workflow. Yes. And that's how it needs to be viewed. I, I really, I was involved on the sales side of businesses before, and I think it's got to do a lot. And I know I'm going to offend a ton of people even though I was part of that, is the ego of the sales department and the salespeople of going, oh, they're just marketing. I mean, we used to do it oh, ourselves. They're just marketing. They're so just I don't marketing. Have to. We're going to sell this. You just look, make us look pretty, you know? Yeah. Well, And that's not the case. Any We're seeing it now in the last year, you know, with everything going on, how important digital is when you don't have those sales. Yeah, because how are you going to reach them? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I heard somebody describe it the other day where they said, well, sales gets all the glory and marketing gets all the blame. <laughs> and I thought that is so true because if something's not working, it's not, it's sometimes the sales team, but rarely the sales team's fault. It's we don't have enough leads or not quality leads or marketing's not working. We can't get enough meetings. But if they hit their sales number. It's the sales number. That they're awesome. That's the key. We hit our sales number. The marketing, unless you're e-commerce, e <laughs> that's the only way you're going to hit your number. Yeah, which yeah. for the record is not true. Sales can even help you close the deal. That will be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but did I say sales can close the deal? Marketing yes. can help marketing. you close the deal. Goodness yeah. gracious, that will be the podcast. Yeah. Um, but to your point about clients who think that they already know their personas, another big thing that I run into is clients who say, all of my customers are completely different. 
Oh, yeah. goodness gracious. Yeah. Right? Yes. So no, number one, that's not true. It's never true. Number two, if you have that perception, chances are very high that you are working with a lot of the wrong people. And you are killing your profit margin because you're customizing everything and you shouldn't be. Yes. And I guarantee every time I have that conversation with clients, when we start digging into it and I'm like, which clients would you rather not be working with? They have a list. <laughs> always. There's always yeah. a list. It's like, so are the are those your buyers? Well, I guess not. Yes. <laughs> we had to create a negative buyer persona uh, recently for a client because there was one specific recent situation for them with a client that was so painful that literally hissing her name would bring out like, I mean, just guttural noises from them. They were so burned by this one client. Well, of course, it turns out that there's themes. Well, they wanted to name the internal buyer persona that woman's actual name. Mm. I was like, nope, nope, we will, we will not. We will not be. T- <laughs> oh my God. It was so funny, but it was to your point that once that got raised to the surface, that it wasn't just one scenario, but it was a certain theme, a certain type of person that they could avoid. Oh my gosh. I mean, what we learned about their differentiation actually came out of the pain even better than what came out of, you know, some of the natural and happy, optimistic, profitable buyer personas. It was fascinating. That's so true. One of the things that I find in the, in particular, in the customer, in the custom software industry is that these businesses work with a lot of different types of projects in a lot of different sectors. So, when they are looking at buyer personas, they're thinking, well, we don't just work in healthcare. We have a military client and we have a you know nonprofit client and we have a startup client. And so they're thinking that all their buyers have to be in these very specific categories by industry or by role or by company size or right. by geography. But what I'm finding more and more is that the real commonalities in those situations have to do with shared values. And when they shift their nice. language... So that it's not about specific verticals, but it's about how they do business and how they treat people and what their commitment is to excellence and how they prove that. That's when they start getting traction. Yes. Mm. Well, I really like that because if I'm reading between the lines of what you're saying, specialization is not only about, oh, we've worked in this industry before, or we've worked with companies that look exactly like yours, but instead... Like you said, it's that values alignment and even maybe we specialize in your specific problem or Mm -hmm. your specific desired transformation or goals. I mean, all of a sudden it gives a lot of nuance to specialization, if you will, which, you know, we all advocate for be a specialist, you know, bring maximum value to a client. But I think that is a great point. Yeah, when you have a client or clients that would have that many different types of fields that those buyer personas would quote fit into, it'd be a lot easier to, like you said, identify their pains. Yeah. And it would narrow it down when you went to go spend on their uh, marketing ad budget or whatever it may be to try to hit all those different sectors versus, oh, if we just pick out the pain, we can attract them that way. 100%. So you're bringing up emotion. I wanted to throw that back over to Daisy. You mentioned it, of course, earlier. So give some examples. You know, you had mentioned, okay, emotion doesn't necessarily mean, you know, gooey, (laughs) you know, or fluffy, but, you know, what are some examples of how 
marketing in tech space or in business to business can use emotion to really resonate? Sure. So I have a client in the custom software development space and his specialty is user experience. So that is not just a, an actual practical problem. It is psychological suffering. Yes. So for those of us who are just so frustrated as, as end users of software, why isn't this loading? Why do I have to click five times to get to the page that I want to get Where to? Where is the doggone help section? Yes. Yeah. Yes. When, it, you know, it's just adding a few seconds to the time it takes to do something, but because it should have been architected from the start, with your experience in mind, that's where the suffering comes from. Yes. So for for that company, the, his messaging is around customer experience and user experience. And the customers that are ideal for him are the ones that care about how their customers experience things. So it's, again, going back to that resonance and values and how they approach life, that's something that they can talk to their customers about. Like, is this frustration... Yeah, is because things are not done how they should be done. And that validation that people have saying, yes, I know that that's that's true. That's how I feel. That's how my customers feel. We deserve better. That's a very strong emotional. It's visceral. Yes. You know, two weeks ago, I'm glad she brought that up because two weeks ago, I went to buy an outdoor product. Yeah. And it was from a company in Wisconsin. And I'm like, how did this pull up? They were great targeting me because their item pulled up that a lot of people offered and i'm like you know what i'll buy it from them that's awesome and the user experience i could not get through there and check out right properly and i just clicked off of it and went to another the next site down and bought it in just like that and they they won and i almost wanted to email them you know hey i've tried to buy this product from you but i didn't want to log in as a customer or what you know you didn't give me a chance to What's that called when you log in or uh, buy something as a... As a guest, guest Like a yeah. guest. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't live up there. It's not something I frequent. Right. I don't need reward points for it. Right. You know. Exactly. Make it easy to let me give you yeah, money. Yeah, for Make sure. it easy. Yes. That's so... And in marketing, it's so tempting to be like, what, how can we extract the most information about the customer in this experience? <sighs> you know yes. what information you're going to find? <laughs> to tick your customers off. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I didn't make it to the survey. (laughs) I love it. I know that is so difficult. It's convincing people shorter forms, less friction, trust the process. Don't say everything in the very first ad, the very first email. You know, just trust the relationship. It's hard. That's actually uh, brings up another common mistake that uh, businesses make. I work with a lot of companies right when they're at the inflection point, when they're moving from networking and referrals to doing their first cold outreach or their first content marketing. or They're really having their first encounters with customers who are going to be experiencing their brand without the human interaction coming first. Yes, right. And... They don't really understand how much of the emotional heavy lifting has been done up front when they have someone who's been warm referred to them or they've met someone at a networking event. And they're using their website typically just, just you know, it's an online business card or it's cre- credibility building or it's furthering the sales process. They're actually ready to, okay, when they go to the website, they're interested in, you know, consideration or decision stage stuff. 
Um, so when they start building out their sales and marketing engine to bring in cold contacts, people who are hitting that website who've never interacted with a human person at that brand, right? They don't realize that it needs to be built to engage emotionally. It needs to build trust and rapport before it does anything else. And man, that's hard for technology companies yeah. to accept because they're like, no, our, our homepage needs to be about our product. Yes. But right. your homepage has to be about the people. It has yes. to be about who you're talking to. And you have to walk them through all those stages of building rapport and trust and interest and earning their attention that they would have already done through their direct uh, networking or referrals before. And now their website has to do that. Yeah. It also has to serve all the other stages. It has to be easy for customers, to, you know, prospects, cold visitors to come there and immediately self-identify. This is where I am. This is where I want to. Yes. I want to know. Quick, quick, quick. And this is what I'm here to do. Yep. And this is how I do it. So that's that's another common mistake when people are trying to engage customers in the digital age. And we're seeing that more and more. People aren't having the conversations that they used to. And they're not having the in-person contact. And buyers are wanting to do more and more of the research on their own and go out and find who they want to do business with. So having that that rapport and that trust and that credibility built into the website is very important. There's a yeah. segment in her, uh, one of her speaking topics that she'll talk to kids at universities about. And she's like, it's not about you. You know, <laughs> yes. she gets it through to them constantly. It just sticks to them back of my mind, but yes. it's the truth. You well, know. And you know, one of the things that that's about, and I think also, you know, some statistics show that, salespeople are being pushed as far back as 70% out of the sales cycle. Like, so all that research and all that, it's not about you. Like where they, the buyers are taking control of their, how they're deciding their relationship with potential vendors is going to be. Sans humans, no real people involved in this part. It feels like you're, you know, you're out of control on the sales side. Like, you know, you want to do that. It is fun though. You know, because I can speak to you with our marketing, um, people will start in conversations in the middle of a conversation with me. And I'm thinking, you know, we've never actually met before, right? <laughs> I mean, this happened to me a week ago talking with a prospect on a first call. And he said, it's like you're always saying. And he skipped and did not bother to tell me what I'm always saying. And so he's just making a point, And I'm like, Okay, which video do you want? Like, I'm always saying lots of things. <laughs> so, but it's so fun because they have built a relationship with me and with you guys, you know, and our team, even though I've never laid eyes on them until who knows how far through. And so, I mean, you're right. It's so critical to be able to think through that whole process from the customer's experience or the prospective customer's experience, not just what you want on your homepage. Right? Yeah, it's the statistic that... <laughs> They know you. They know you and your product before they've made that decision before they even talk to the salesman. Yep. Chances you know the statistic, but it always is changing. And now in the digital age, it keeps on seven get, to thirteen touches to get a lead. Seven mm. to thirteen. That's not a qualified lead, people. That is just <laughs> you know their name and you know they're in the market. <laughs> I think that's it's hard to give up control in this age where we have so much more data. Yeah. But companies need to come to terms with the fact that they're not in control. 100%. And that means they need to serve better. Serve, don't sell. Yes. 
hundred percent. I love that. Absolutely. And the better that you know your customers and the better you serve them, the more you can actually guide them through the process that you want them to have. Because there's, there's always two things. There's the, the customer journey and there's the sales journey. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the one they want to take. And this is the one you want them to take. But the more you come alongside them in service, the more you can guide them and serve them better. With now, not that. to go down a rabbit hole of this, but do you think these companies that collect a data form are kind of pushing them into the belief that, oh, we've got the data. We know what they want, you know, without touching those emotional points. It's like, if you just have this data, we can sell it for you. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, it yeah, depends well, I'm on... Yeah, well, I'm not in that. Yeah, exactly. Really I mean, I guess it depends on if the analysts are working closely with the creatives, right? Because if they are, then it's magic. Right. Uh, you know, and if you're getting the right people saying, what is the data telling us? What insights are we learning? And then how can we serve people better through that? What do you think? I think that as the, as the analytics side gets better at understanding intent, they're mm. getting better at it, mm -hmm. but it still lacks a lot of the nuance that you only get from talking to the customer and talking to the sales team. Yeah. And I've seen too many projects where they were making assumptions. Well, the data says people are Googling mm. this. Yes. Doesn't mean Jack. If yeah. they're Googling it, why are they Googling it? That's key. I mean, we're in the middle of a big project right now where we're getting massive volume on the keywords, but nothing's converting into leads. And so it's all about the intent behind that. So we're feverishly trying to figure out and interview customers and, you know, tap into the sales team about why do you think, what are you hearing? What are people saying about this? I mean, but we're, doing exactly what you're saying is trying to figure out what are the humans doing behind the numbers? What does it actually mean? <laughs> exactly. That's one thing. Leads have not converted as much this year. And I think this is interesting that, so I wanted your take on this. So about a year, year and a half ago, you could run certain lead generation playbooks and predictably, you know, hit the benchmarks and then beat them, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, really know what you're going to get. I'm seeing leads gone. And I actually, I mean, where there, there's no leads, there's traffic, but there's no leads. People are not raising their hand to say, I'm ready to buy. And I had to tell a client, we have to actually create the urgency. And I think why that's happening is that there's so many things that companies need to do right now with pivoting, with d digital transformation, you know, with their remote people, with all the different things, right? That prioritizing is really, really challenging for companies of all sizes. And so I don't think leads are straightforward anymore. I don't think budgets are straightforward anymore. And I think we need to take more responsibility of using your word earlier, guiding people and serving them so that we can actually help them make good decisions. Like, are you seeing that? What do you, like, what do you make of leads disappearing even though people are still researching so a lot of that just sounds like a not now we can't make a decision now we either don't have the resources to do it now but we know we need to do it um and i'm i think there are two ways to look at the the whole creating urgency thing i think not as much of it is about creating urgency but more of it's about creating safety Mm, so a lot of people are twist. like i know i need to do something i'm not sure what i need to do I, i'm not sure how to do it right now. So it's not necessarily let's, you know, turn the screws the on yes. you need to amplify your pain points. <laughs> right. it's, we need to make you feel safe to make this decision now. 
Oh, I love that. Oh, such a good point. Really good. All right. What else was I wanting to talk to you about today? I'm like, we have covered so much. I'm like, yeah, we have like 45 minutes in. It's been so fun. (laughs) Straight. No commercials. (laughs) <laughs> you can add those in no, there. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, who wants to be our sponsor? Uh, Blender? Uh, I guess I would wrap it one final thing up is what advice would you give to people? And it can be organizational. It can be individual. But just from your point of view as a communications expert, what encouragement or advice would you give people right now? I would say the most important thing right now is listening to your customers. Customer voice has never been more important than it is right now. People are not only swamped with all the decisions they have to make, but everybody's doing digital marketing now and they're just inundated with content. And so they're just saying no to more and more and more things. So don't, don't look at how much content can I create, but how much value can I offer? And if that's doing it, a couple of pieces of really amazing content a month where people stop what they're doing and go read it, or watch it, then you're doing much better than a company that's creating 20 pieces of content a day and cluttering up people's inboxes and making people make those decisions and use up their mental effort trying to figure out what they need. You should know what they need because you've been listening to them. And because you're a master of your topic, I love that. I mean, amen to more value in my inbox and less clutter. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I think it is finally turning to the quality rather yeah. than the quantity. They used to always say, hey, you just push out as much quantity as possible. Gary You'll Fee. F- <laughs> yeah, we I all mean, knew you were talking about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Call him out. Heck yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think those tables are turning now that everyone it's is, got is the way they're selling. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Daisy McCarty, thank you so much for being on here. And where can people find you, reach you? I mean, obviously they can reach you at the Marketing Blender, so call us. No, <laughs> no but seriously, where can they follow, find you, follow you, anything like that? Sure, the best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. I'm, I think, still the only Daisy McCarty with a fully developed profile, so I'm super <laughs> easy to find. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for the name. And yes, so connect with me, become a part of my network. I'm always happy to introduce my new connections to my network, make introductions for you and uh, share your brand message with the people that I know. Awesome. You're not on TikTok? (laughs) No. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) Onward and upward, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Corporate Caffeine Podcast, please help us help you by subscribing. I also hope you'll find us on social media. You can follow me, Dacia Coffee, and my company, The Marketing Blender, by searching us on your favorite platform or checking out the show notes for the links. We bring this to you because we envision a business world full of meaning, connection, and prosperity for us all. Until next time, onward and upward.